I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And oh, you are a fool to let, let me go. Why did you let me go? It's so lonesome here without you. Oh, how I miss you. Welcome to Billboard's very first Soul Sisters podcast. I'm Jesse Katz, writer and content creator here at Billboard, and I'm here with my co-host Dara Golub from the indie pop band Parlor Tricks. Together, Dara and I will be talking to inspiring women in music about how they came into their own as artists and what inspired them along the way. In the often male-dominated field of podcasting and entertainment in general, we want to create a space for smart, talented women to offer some insight and inspiration to all of our listeners out there who might be wondering just how they did it. How can I do it? How can we all collectively make it together? Well, that's what we'll be here each week to figure out. Today, we are recording at the awesome Chord Club in New York City, where we will be chatting with and then hearing a live performance by our very first guest ever on Soul Sisters, Grammy Award-winning musician and all-around badass woman, Susan Tedeschi. Susan, thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me. It's an honor. I'm excited uh, to be the first. Yeah, so we, we have to kick things off right. So let's all be really smart and inspiring, shall we? (laughs) Are you ready for the challenge? Um, Well, so you're here in New York. You played at the Apollo Theater last night. It was a phenomenal show. It was my first time at the Apollo, and I heard also your first time? Not my first time. It was our first time as the band. As the band, right. Okay. my third time. Third time. Oh, so you played there by yourself. Well, I performed there once. Uh, Derek and I were playing with, well, actually the very first time it was Hubert Sumlin's 80th birthday party. And he was supposed to play, but he passed away. And all the artists that were supposed to do it showed up anyway, as well as many others like Keith Richards and Eric Clapton. But it was uh, James Cotton and Doyle Bram Hall II. And, you know, um, actually um, some of the original members, uh, there's one living member from from uh, Hubert Sumlin's band that, I mean, actually, Hubert Sumlin played with Howlin' Wolf, with Howlin' Wolf's band, who was there too, uh, Jody Williams. So, <clears throat> you know, lots of people, um, just, it was an amazing event. Yeah. Second time was with Herbie Hancock. It was to raise money for the Jazz Foundation, which actually helps out a lot of musicians who can't pay the rent or have medical bills or are stuck in some way and maybe aren't able to get out and gig maybe they're older mm-hmm. but maybe have some really big hits and people know about them and they're struggling so it's a great foundation that raises money for musicians and I got to do that and that was really intimidating and totally scary <laughs> when was that 
That was, um, I think it was like last year, but about a year ago. Okay. I, I don't know anymore because my skew of time, like once <laughs> yeah. it's past, I don't remember, but I, I know everything past. in the future, <laughs> but I don't know the past anymore. How do you market, do you sort of market <clears throat> pre Tedeschi trucks, post Tedeschi? I mean, oh, that was you, during Tedeschi trucks. But how do you think of time these days? Are you like, <laughs> okay, so for me, it's, it's much easier to gauge it on your children. Okay. So I, I gave birth in 2002 and 2004. If I hadn't given birth, I would not know what happened in 2002 <laughs> or four. Uh, honestly, it really helps me, you know, with my kids and how old they are and what I was doing during the times that they were certain ages. So that helps a lot, as well as having this band now, Tedeschi Trucks, since 2010. I can gauge the last six years, which is much easier to handle than right. since 95. Right. I don't even know all my band mates. You know, literally, I've had so many different bands since 93 or 91 that and you have a lot of people in your hard. band <laughs> yeah and we have a 12-piece band now yeah so it's a lot it's no keep up small with. thing i mean it was quite a sight to see you guys up there you can't understand just by listening to the music what an ensemble it is it's it's quite an yeah. amazing machine i don't even know how to describe it <laughs> just all these amazing musicians and I lucked out and got in the band. And then now we actually have two other really beautiful, strong, powerful women in the band. That's right. So we didn't have any women in the band as an 11 piece. Okay. And then we actually got a new bass player. We got Tim. So he was one of the newer members in the last, you know, five years. And after that, you know, we were starting to get really nice and consolidated. And we had a couple horn players um, that came and went. And now we have a new female trombone player, Elizabeth Lee from she was California. Amazing. She's amazing. Yeah, she's played with lots of musicians. She's been on tons of albums, and she's just one of those people that's really sweet and just super outgoing and adds a lot on stage, too. She yeah. has a lot of great energy and wonderful musician, too. And also have Alicia Shakur on vocals, and she's an amazing singer. Um, her father is kind of famous. Her father is Mitch Shakur. Who a lot of people know he actually used to play with Joe Cocker for like 10 years or maybe wow. even longer um, but he's an amazing musician and and so it's just really great to have two women in the band now yeah um was last night the first time you played Midnight in Harlem in Harlem yes okay we're well, pretty was. excited about that yeah <laughs> it was very exciting yeah it was nice nice moment it was cute um because I actually asked it Asked my husband, I'm like, are we playing it? And he's like, yes, we'll play it. Yeah, because we're like, are you too on the nose? Yeah, I don't right. want to be too obvious. I know, because he's like, you know, I was maybe like, oh no, please don't say no. You know, <laughs> people want to hear this. So it worked, worked out perfect. Yeah. Um, so I have to tell you that I went to a BB King concert in Columbus, Ohio in 2000. And it was my first like trip off of my college campus after I went to college. We all decided to like just go to the show spur of the moment. And I was like lying in the grass at the amphitheater, not paying attention to who the opening acts were. And then you came out and you are the only thing I remember about that show. I remember it being <laughs> cool that I saw B.B. King play, but I don't really remember his performance. But you, we were all blown away by. And I like bought your CD right away and was a huge fan. It was like... You, Lucinda Williams, and Bonnie Rayet were like on rotation that year. Awesome. Yeah. So this is like a nice full circle moment for me, <laughs> I have to say. I remember that show. Yeah? I what do, do you remember about it? Well, I think Johnny Ling was supposed to play that show, and he ended up having to cancel. And I think it was Buddy Guy and BB and I. 
because yeah, that's right, Buddy was there. Yeah. yeah, Buddy was there, and then I remember that night specifically because BB asked me to get up with him and Buddy, and I sat in the middle between the two of them in chairs, and I was like, "What is happening? Am I dreaming? <laughs> like, pinch me right now?" So yeah, so I, I remember that night. Yeah, that was a, that, that was, was a good cool. one. So okay, so these are our markers that we're going to work towards. Right. Is that show, <laughs> and then we'll get to now. Yeah. But let's <laughs> rewind all the way back. To this girl from Boston, yeah, who has this this crazy voice that I have read is sometimes described as blue eyed soul, which is a term I never heard before. I think it's just because I'm white and I have blue <laughs> yeah, eyes. Right. I don't know <laughs> how does that strike you, that but it's like a thing. I saw like on Wikipedia, you could like <clears throat> click on blue eyed soul, and oh. they've decided it's a genre. <laughs> you know, nowadays it's a genre for everything. That's true. You know, and there's <laughs> and too Wikipedia many categories. In the old days, there was country, there was Folk, there was blues, gospel, rock, pop, classical, and that was about it. Done, right. yeah. Done. Nice <laughs> Sounds, and easy. Oh, R&B, R&B. <laughs> right, right. Now, I don't even know what categories are. I don't even know half the artists. You know, it's just, yeah. it's very confusing. I think they should simplify it. Simplify <laughs> it would be We're way gonna easier. We're going to come back around to yeah. more simplified. Um, so, at the, so when you were growing up in... Boston or was it? So I grew up in Norwell, Massachusetts, okay. which is a suburb of Boston. It's about 30 minutes south in between Cape Cod and, and Boston. Uh, it's actually the home of Zildjian Symbols. So if you're a drummer, oh, wow. you would know about Norwell because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's where Aveda Zildjian and all those guys are from. Um, <clears throat> so And the other claim to fame we had growing up was a lot of the guys from Aerosmith grew up right around the same area. So Brad Whifford from Aerosmith lived in Norwell. My girlfriend, uh, my friend Nicole, growing up, she used to babysit their kids. They used to go to my parents' video store. My very first backstage concert was Aerosmith in 84, live at the Manning Bowl in Lynn, Massachusetts. And it was kind of a trip. How'd that happen? Because we were friends with Brad through the video store. Wait, your parents owned a video store? Yeah, my parents owned (gasps) a video store. And I used to work for them on weekends and, you know, saved up all my book money for college that way. Nice. Pretty much. Wow. So were you a big movie nerd because of that? I was, but not as big as like my brothers, especially my oldest brother. He still to this day like doesn't, you know, impersonations of, you know, everybody from Sean Connery to whoever. I mean, it's yeah. hilarious. Um, Bill Murray, you name it. He'll start pulling somebody out and you know start acting but I'm afraid to ask if the store still exists. It doesn't. Actually, they sold it in 1988. Okay, they sold it before they all yeah, got out. So they, in general. my parents actually, it started out. My mom and her girlfriend started out having this, and it was actually strong women once again starting <laughs> out having an idea to, hey, we should start our own business of like videotaping weddings. So they went around and videotaped weddings, and then my mom was like, well, we should do something else. Like we should actually have a video store where people can rent stuff and or buy equipment or you know if they have questions, this kind of thing. And my dad is. We call him Gadget Man because he's amazing. <laughs> you know, he's really, really great when it comes to any kind of electronic component of any kind. Um, and he he knew all of the technology at the time, and he decided to start a business with my mom. And so that's how that started. And my brothers and I, starting at age 11, 13, and 14, that's how old we were when we opened the store originally. So by the time I actually really started working, I was about... 12 or 13. Okay. So you could rent a video, but you could also rent a camera? Yeah, you could rent video equipment. Full service. You could buy stuff or you could buy a home, like a home stereo system, you know, like so you could have surround sound. We had VHS and Betamax, eight millimeter when it first came out. (laughs) 
And so we had movies for rent in beta and VHS. Okay. And actually, beta is a more high-quality tape, but VHS was cheaper to make, so that's why it became more popular. Yeah. Some people listening are like, don't know any of these words. I know. Well, now <laughs> it's like crazy. they know DVDs. Right. But in the old days, people... They barely know DVDs. Which is basically similar to music in a lot of ways because tape, you know, runs on magnets and, you know, magnetic heads and all this stuff that uh, probably kids don't know about also. Um, yeah, in the old days, we used to have cassettes. You know, we used to have, you know, Eight Sony track, Walkmans. Right? I, ho- I heard they're selling them at Urban Outfitters again. again. No. <laughs> So they're trying to make a comeback of with cassettes. Are they also mm-hmm. selling? They're selling Walkmans and cassette yeah. tapes. Yeah. It's wow. Great. Tapes trying to are go totally back. back. Yeah. Tapes. I, mean, I don't know if they're tapes still back. and vinyl are coming back. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys still have cassette tapes? I mean, Derek and I have a collection of them. We don't ever listen to them. Yeah. But right. We have yeah. boxes of VHS, Beta, yeah. cassette tapes. We have all sorts of mediums. Even have eight tracks. Yeah. Kids definitely don't know what that is. Right. No. <clears throat> but yeah. So so it was interesting. So growing up, it definitely gave me insight into the you know, technology on a certain level. But then that's kind of where it stops for me. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we understand we can place you in the technology kind of video yeah. realm. Where does the music come from? I, I read you were an understudy on Broadway at age six? Ten. Ten, okay. Okay, so this was 1980. I was born in 70. So in 1980, my grandmother said, well, I was really into theater, and I, all little girls are into Annie, Okay. I don't care what decade it is, but at this no, it's particular oh, yeah. time, point, always. yeah, at this particular point in my life, it was when Andrea McArdle had just retired. Martin Sharon was the producer. It was a big deal, and they had auditions, open auditions at the. Oh, I can't remember the name of the theater now. It was a theater here in New York City. I'll think of it maybe while talking. And do you know how you heard of it? I mean, you're you're the a Alvin kid Theater. And, okay, okay, the Alvin Theater, and so. It was a big deal, and they had open auditions, and literally 60,000 girls showed up. <laughs> was it a, an ad you saw on TV? Were you searching this stuff out? I mean, how did it you was, even know? I don't even... I think it was in the newspapers. Okay. Is what it was. It was in the newspapers. It was a printed ad. And so you heard about it, and you went, and my grandmother took me to New York. We stayed at the New York Hilton. I was blown away because orange juice was $2.50. <laughs> for a glass of orange juice. And this was 1980. Mm-hmm. I was like, what is wrong with America? This is too expensive. It should be like 75 cents. And was your grandma like, we're not ordering the orange juice? No, she was like, have the orange juice. Just get over it. I was, you know, I thought it was way too much. Um, but You're it was a very frugal young yeah. girl. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I just, I just thought it was outrageous. I'm from a little suburb. And, yeah. You know. So did you have a song up your sleeve? You so, were ready? Or? Well, I was ready. So you get to the audition and you wait and you watch all the other girls. They literally stick Ugh. 10 rows of six. So there's 60 girls on stage and they sing happy birthday. Happy birthday. They, they tell you what wow. to sing. <clears> Everybody sing had birthday? to sing happy birthday. And if you made it oh, past wow. the happy birthday you and you got picked out of, you got stuck like, you, you had to go talk to someone and was like, okay, I guess I got chosen for something. Then you went in another group. Then that group like broke down. And, and to make a long story short, I was a callback okay. is what it was. So I was a callback. Did then, you wail? I just, do you remember? Yeah, like, you how do you make happy, happy birthday, birthday special? How do you see oh, that? yeah. I have, well, <laughs> I have to be honest. The first time I did it, I was like hanging out with some girl from Jersey and I picked up her accent. So I did it like with this weird accent. And then I started crying and. Martin Sharon came back. He's like, you sing again. He said, and drop that phony accent. <laughs> I was like, how did he know I was faking? But he knew. And then I gr- dropped the accent altogether because I had been doing theater and stuff for a long time. Actually, already at around four or five years old, I started being on stage. <clears throat> so I dropped the accent, sang it out, belted it, 
did it good. And he said, okay, why didn't you sing like that the first time? I was like, I don't know. I've been sitting here for like 12 hours waiting to <laughs> sing happy birthday. And I, I thought got I was from Jersey at this point. Yeah. yeah. So to make a long story short, it went good. And I didn't get the role. And they called me back and they said, well, you're going to be understudy for Pepper, who's one of the girls. Yeah. You know? and, and if somebody gets sick, then we'll call you and then you'll okay. come and you'll do all the stuff. Oh, you didn't have to be on so call. I didn't have there, to be like... on call. I just, I was, you know, and it was actually for the road version. It okay. wasn't the Broadway in okay. one place. It was more the traveling. Yeah. But were you devastated or did you handle it like a pro? I handled it fine. Actually, you know, I was used to rejection. I got a bunch of, you know. <laughs> Is that I, rejection? I think that's great. I mean, in a way it was, <laughs> it was an accomplishment. Yeah. But the best thing that came out of that entire experience was when I was at the, the hotel, I ran into Johnny Cash. And I didn't know who he was, and I literally physically ran into him. And he's like, slow down, little girl. Where are you going in such a hurry? I was like, the Bee Gees are pulling up. And it was totally embarrassing. And he's like, you like the Bee Gees? I was like, well, and it was 1980. They're huge. You know? yeah. I was like, well, it's the Bee Gees. I don't know. I mean, they're singers. I'm a singer. You know. He's like, well, I'm a singer, too. Maybe we'll get to sing together someday. Oh and God. he had this I Love New York pin that some fan had given him, and he gave it to me. I still have it. What? And How did you know it was Johnny Cash? And then as soon as he left, everybody came rushing over, including my grandmother, who I was looking for. <laughs> and she's like, what did Johnny Cash say to you? All these people were like, what did Johnny Cash say to you? I was like, oh, that was Johnny Cash. <laughs> oh, so you knew yeah. of Johnny Cash? I knew of him, okay. but I didn't know what he looked like. Yeah. Wow. And he was all dressed in black, and he yeah. was very tall. He, he anointed you with that pin. He did. He passed off some mojo to you. Yeah, I think he did. So I think it's, it's good his thing you fault kept it. That I'm it's doing what fault. I do. <laughs> there you go. When times get I'll tough. Take credit. No, um, but he was. So that was really the best thing that came out of that. Other than the learning experience of how not to put on a phony accent, right. and be yourself um, at the end of the day. So, uh, so it was a learning experience. But you had already started performing before that. Yeah. So. so my very first show, I was a workhouse boy in Oliver and had to have a Cockney accent. I was five. Okay. Oh, my God. That was my first show. <clears throat> yeah, it's yeah, a great one. It's a great It's, it's a great show. It's great. Yeah. I still remember all the lyrics for every song, too. Of course. And then cool. later... Was that like local theater or school? It, or? Was, um, it was sort of local. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't in Norwell. It was in a, a group in Plymouth. So okay. I did a lot of different groups from the South Shore. There was Hingham Civic Music Theater. There was um, the Company Theater. There was a In Situate. There was um, so there was a bunch of different groups. This was in Plymouth, and it was called some. It was actually a, a group I'd never been part of. It was one that my mom was part of, and I got that role. And yeah, then, I was going to ask if, <clears throat> if your parents were performers or how did you my mom start was. this? Okay, so my mom was an actress, a singer, dancer. My dad was guitar player harmonica player and singer so he was into bob dylan go. and all that kind of stuff and sometimes the math works out yeah. <laughs> yeah so actually i lucked out because my mom gave me the confidence to get on stage and put me through all the you know all of the really the difficult part of being on stage mm -hmm. which is really the fear mm -hmm. you know people don't realize how intimidating and how when you get up there and there all of a sudden there's a spotlight on you you really are like the Brady Bunch when you see the red light and you can't talk, you know, it's like, you know, sometimes that can happen. Yeah. So <clears throat> for me, I thought that really prepared me for being on stage and, and also just the live aspect of being in a musical or a play where you have to just keep going, even if something happens, you know, mm -hmm. I, I was actually in a play in high school. This is kind of a funny joke, um, that the leading role was Jeff Corwin, you know, from Animal Planet. He has his own TV yeah. show. Yeah. Well, I was, we were doing a skit from Get Smart and I was ni 99 and <laughs> he runs out first, first scene, slides and breaks his leg on stage. 
Oh, no. So the kid who was the understudy had to come out with a script and read the rest of the lines of the rest of the play. Whereas like, that, that's a crash course in, in yeah. you know, making it work. Yeah. <laughs> so stuff happens. You just learn to go on the flow. Yeah. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But yeah, so, so yeah, I've had tons of experience on stage doing that. And then my dad really turned me on to the very first blues and soul music that I heard, I think was really my dad playing um, the staple singers, Lightning Hopkins, Mississippi John Hurt. So he he turned me on to a lot of stuff that I'm still into to this day. Yeah. And it was him going to see Bob Dylan. He went and saw the mm. Beatles. He went and saw, <clears throat> you know, all the Newport Folk Festivals. He would go to this club called Club Passim and Club 47 um, in the old days when he could go see uh, Reverend Gary Davis go play, you know, and he'd see Bob Dylan or Joan Baez or um, Taj Mahal when he was 18 years old. You know, it was like all these different artists that now are kind of household names. Yeah. He would go see them. God, that must blow his mind to <clears throat> then have been able to see you play with names like that. Right. Yeah, it's a trip. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I got to play with Dylan once and he couldn't go because it was my brother's bachelor party. <laughs> and he was so heartbroken. He's like, I can't believe I can't go. Oh, and then oh, Dylan asked gosh. me to get up and sit in with him and I thought I was going to sing. Oh, man. And he wanted me to play guitar. So I was like, what? I'm going to play guitar? I don't know his tunes like that. You know, I know all the lyrics. Yeah. I know all the melodies. But thank God for Tony Grande, his upright bass player, who was like, C, F, G. I was like, thank what you. What song was wow. it? Do you remember? Seven different songs. <laughs> he got me up on one song, and then we stayed up. And I, I played on everything from, um, I mean, Highway 61 to Girl from the North Country and songs like um, um, we did the not fade away which is you know the buddy holly tune mm -hmm. we did so many songs i don't even remember and yeah. you hadn't planned this you were no just... <laughs> i didn't plan it at all i don't know what happened i was like okay I'll well plus up. he like totally reinvents the way that he plays his songs <clears throat> yeah now. so you have to know it but then be able to completely discard that. and discard it so it actually worked out better because if i had known it so well it might have been harder to adapt right so it's yeah. much easier just hearing chords come at you and watching what he's doing and following him yeah so it worked out good and he was a sweetheart. And I'd heard all these horror stories about how, un, you know, unapproachable he was. Yeah. Not, oh, he was like, how do you get that tone? I was like, what? Wow. Are you talking about my singing or my guitar playing? He's like, your guitar playing. I was like, oh, oh my, my God. <laughs> so I was just blown away. And he was incredible. And to this day, you know, he's really my favorite songwriter. Um, you know, yeah. I have a lot of favorite songwriters, you know, up and coming ones too, like Oliver Wood from the Wood Brothers, uh, you know, Mike Madison in our band. Um, but Bob Dylan is just one of those 
just never Can't gets old. Him. Mm-hmm. Never gets old. He's amazing. So your dad would tell you stories about seeing him? Yeah. So my dad would go see him at Bridgewater State College when there'd be like 50 people there or, you know, or maybe it would show up to be a couple hundred. But one time he brought my mom when they were dating and, and they were in the parking lot hanging out afterwards. And Dylan came out and took a cigarette out of my mom's mouth and they were hanging out. And I was like, what? So yeah, they've they have a history too, I guess. <laughs> so we've been very fortunate to to get to witness Bob. Yeah, for sure. So this voice of yours, were you? Did this just this was always your voice, or you were very influenced by that kind of singing and that kind of fed into it, or how do you? Well, I had a very sweet and kind of pure voice when I was young. Yeah, <clears throat> not right now. Obviously, <laughs> I was up too late last night and sang last night. Um, but when I was younger. The theater definitely had a certain thing to it, but then I had to learn to project. And so I really liked the belting. And in Annie, you, you belt a lot yeah. for that. So, you know, in the early days, I was trying to belt, and I definitely didn't want to sing wrong. So I had a, a great aunt. My Actually, my grandfather, Nick Tedeschi, his cousin, Josephine Sabino, was an opera singer. And she was amazing. Mm. And I could go on. We could have a whole podcast about her wow. and her life because – she was incredible. And I mean, she spoke eight languages fluently. She yeah. knew all these operas. She went around the world and was an opera singer and was taken out because um, her parents thought that she was sleeping with the producer, but she wasn't. It was some girl trying to go for her part and told her parents that. Oof. And they went all the way over on a boat. It took them two weeks to get her in Europe because back then they didn't, you know, you don't fly yeah, to Europe. Yeah. You'd take a boat. Mm. It was insane. So to make a long story short, she taught me how to breathe properly. And she taught me how to get my breath support at about age 10 or age 11. So I started working with her, and she was always very supportive. She'd come see me whether I was singing Whitney Houston songs or in a play or something. You know, so she was really supportive and would help me understand if I was singing right or not. And that was really the big key. You know, one of the biggest things about singing is rest, hydration, and breathing right. Yeah. You know, if you have those three, then you, you can pretty much do it. Yeah. <clears throat> but this bluesy, sometimes gospel thing that you seem so innately to have, was that informed by what you were listening to, what you were seeing growing up? Okay, so growing up, I never felt like I fit in. I always was struggling to find music that I really connected with. And I loved a lot of music. I loved country. I loved folk. I loved blues. But I didn't know blues artists outside of, you know, a few artists. You know, I only knew a couple that my dad had turned me on to. Mm-hmm. So it really wasn't until even after college. Well, so I went to college. I went to Berkeley College of Music at 17. I started the summer right out of high school and graduated at 20. So I ended up going two summers. So I got to skip a year, basically. Okay. Wasn't the summer there? I did a summer there. It's so fun. It is fun. Isn't that fun? Yeah. I imagine it's different during well, the Well, they year. have the two different. <laughs> they have the two, Well, see, I went and did a 10-week. Okay, which is yeah. So they have the five and a ten. If you do the ten week, you actually get college credit, and it it's like going for a regular semester. Mm -hmm. So I did that. I opted to do that because I was a nerd at the time and wanted to get (laughs) college credit if I was doing the time. So I did that, and then at school we had a gospel choir, and you had to audition to get in, and it was really hard and intimidating. And I was a freshman, and I didn't audition the first year, but I made a lot of friends with kids that were in the choir. And they helped me get my confidence up to at least audition. So I auditioned and made it. And that was the biggest thing I'd ever, I felt like I won the lottery. Yeah. And it was amazing. Did and you grow up going to church and seeing that kind of music? <clears throat> no, because I grew up, 
I did sing in the choir growing up, but I was raised Catholic. Right. So it was more like... How Italian is your family? Like, how far back? (laughs) Okay, so... Let's get get the full scope here. All right. My grandfather (laughs) on my dad's side, Uh 100% Italian. Okay. But my grandmother on my dad's side, 100% English. Uh, Okay. And now my my mother's side, her dad was 100% um, Irish. So I have three grandparents who are very different. Yeah. And then... My other grandmother was a mutt. She was like German, Irish, Dutch, French, whatever, English. Okay. So were they all born here, your grandparents? Um, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, some of them were first generation. Okay. Like their parents had come over on the boat. Right. But they were all born here, either in Rockland, Mass, Dorchester, um, Cincinnati, Ohio, and I don't know where my grand. Yeah. I don't know where my, I guess my grandmother was born in Massachusetts, my other grandmother. <clears throat> but okay. I didn't know her. She died when my dad was 13. Got it. So, um, so interesting. Raised Catholic. raised Catholic, sang a lot of Christian music, which was very right out of like the, amen, you know, like yeah. just to me Coral. kind of boring. It was and not feeding you artistically. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was straight up classical, but without like the passion and mm-hmm. the emotion. And I thought that music if you're having a spiritual experience it should be moving and you should be crying and it should be intense and where did, did that come from family so, that that innate sense of knowing that and i think i that? was just a very sensitive person and mm-hmm. i just i always like, searched i want to cry <laughs> well i'm not really I, feeling I things until i'm all crying the time anyway i was just <laughs> i don't know what it was about me as a child but i cry all the time and finally you know i i got into gospel music and it was people like mahalia jackson and people like Sam Cooke and the Soul Stirrers and the Golden Gate Quartet and Blind Boys and Clara Ward and, you know, all these people, they made me cry. Mahalia Jackson made me cry. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, I really like her. And Aretha Franklin, she would make me cry. Mm-hmm. You know, people mm-hmm. that I could really feel and I could feel the energy. And then later on, so I, when I, the gospel choir really changed things for me. But then I realized, you know, I love this form of music, but how am I going to make a living as a, you know, white girl once again yeah singing gospel (laughs) it was kind of a strange thing um but we went along you know for three years i was in the gospel choir i give a lot of credit to my 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 teacher all of my teachers at the time well orville wright was the head of the department and our teacher our main teacher was a previous student who was just a little older than us dennis montgomery the third from shreveport louisiana perfect pitch amazing b3 player We'd have a choir of 60 people. If one person was singing flat, he would tell you, <laughs> hey, uh, flat top head, whatever. Like you pick somebody out and embarrass them in front of the whole choir and be yeah. like, you're singing the wrong part and you know, you're singing it sharp or you're singing it flat. Like he could hear everybody. And so that was intimidating. You had to be on your game, but it was an incredible choir. I, you know, two of the girls in our choir were Donnie Hathaway's daughters. So Kenya and Layla Hathaway. I sat with Kenya all the time. She was a sweetheart. She actually now works, well, she has been working for American Idol for years as a backup singer. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Which I personally think she's above that because she's an amazing singer. Well, um, I'm sure she's helping raise them all up. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. But that's coming to an end soon. That's so, true. Yeah, so she's going to need a gig. So if anyone needs an amazing singer, you should hire her. <laughs> <clears throat> well, you already have 11 people in your band. You I know. <laughs> I would take her out. Goodness. I would, I would create a job for her. <laughs> But um, so anyway, so that was the start of it. And then when I graduate college, I had some friends from Berkeley and some, you know, other friends that were running this blues jam and they needed singers. 
because everybody that would come and sit in were like guitar players or drummers, and they didn't have anyone to sing the songs. Uh-huh. So they asked me if I would learn some blues songs. So I went to Stereo Jacks on 150 Mass Ave, like right up the street from there. There used to be a Tower Records in the old days, and across yeah. the street, a little mom-and-pop store called Stereo Jacks. I'd go in there, and I searched out all these amazing records and that's when I first found T-Bone Walker and Etta James and Coco Taylor and Big Mama Thornton and you know the list goes on and on Charles Brown to whoever and then I realized oh my gosh some of these people are actually playing at the Regatta Bar and and I was like wow I can go see these people so I would go see Charles Brown um, you know I would see uh, Ruth Brown she played um, I would see people like Pharaoh Sanders it was incredible it was an incredible time because I was really just learning so much all at once. Mm. And I also was starting to get obsessed with the guitar because I didn't really play guitar outside of cowboy chords, Mm -hmm. you know, first position from like 14 until 22, 23 years old. So you didn't pick up a guitar in college? No. Wow. Mm -mm. Just a singer in college. Yeah, just a singer. So I have a question which both of you could speak to as music school students. How much are they trying to prepare you when you're in school for the business aspect of what you're headed into? Well, things were changing a lot when I was there. Uh And so they had just for the first time had a business major, but they were starting to build, but it really wasn't even intact yet. Okay. And so we had a class called Legal Aspects of Music Materials that you could take. It was basically a law class that you would learn about contracts and what it is to, you know, do copyrights. Mm -hmm. And you'd learn about how there were different cases. Um, So you took that class? Yeah, took that class. And you remember it kind of? Yeah, I do. (laughs) And Jay Falkoff was my teacher and he's actual entertainment lawyer. He was fabulous out of Boston and you know a lot of those things really help prepare me but nothing really prepares you other than going out and doing it yourself yeah and meeting people and and honestly getting burned mm-hmm. like learning the hard way and that kind of stuff you know it makes you double check things and also make sure you have the right people around you you know people that you can trust and and there's a lot to learn and nothing is set in stone. Like I love when people are like, well, this is standard in the industry. Right. And I was Isn't like, there's silly? nothing standard. The industry has right. been around 50 years or a hundred years. You know, it's not, it's like That's saying this is standard in iPhones. Like what? It, it's been around 10 years. Like, what are you talking about? Like, so people just, uh, <clears throat> to me, like we're not really super helpful in laying anything out for you. It mm-hmm. was more about you had to choose your path and what was it you wanted to get out of it? And how do you want to be prepared? So they would have classes that they offered, but you'd have to figure it out. Yeah. But you're so young at that age. Oh, so young. You don't feel that young, but you're so young. Oh, so young. I was 17 to 20 you're so young. And I also just find it hard to imagine what it must be like to do this kind of work without there being the internet and without there being the easy (laughs) way to find out where, what, how, who, and connect. And it's like, that that element is just, it's mind boggling. And people did it for until 10 years ago, not even. Well, I kind of liked it the old fashioned way. Yeah. I mean, because they would, you had to wait until they posted something up on a board and you'd run up and you'd look to see if your name was on something. Like if you auditioned for something, Yeah, you know, um, and you know, you 
had to work and you had to talk to people. You had to, it was intimidating, but you had to talk to some of these teachers and be like, well, what can I do for extra credit? You know, I'm struggling here. Or, or you know, I heard there's an audition. Is there an audition coming up for, for this class? You know, I really want to do recording ensemble, but I heard they only take six singers. And, you know, how do I do that? And what, what should I do to prepare? All right, you need to go home and pick out two songs and you need to write lead sheets. And, you, and if you don't know, then you go find somebody that knows how to write a lead sheet. You don't look it up on the computer. Right. You go find, oh, that's how you make friends. And that's how, I remember this kid, Dwayne Burno. he was an upright bass player, recently passed away. He used to play with uh, Betty Carter and people like that. But we, we were going to school. I became friends with him. And I was like, hey, Dwayne, you know, what do I do? Like, how do I write this chart? He's like, oh, that's easy. You're overthinking it. It's this, you know. And, and he'd show me. And then I was like, oh, well, that's so much easier. And you know, how do I communicate this to a drummer? He's like, okay, you know, you're going to want to tell him you want to, you know, play a shuffle here, or you want to, you know, you want to swing this part, or you want to do, like, I didn't know. Mm. So you have to ask people, and you ask other kids and your peers, and then they, they're like, oh, well, why don't we get together and jam, and then you end up playing, and then all of a sudden you're, you know, my my band at the time I put together in college, I had Abel Boreal Jr. on drums, this guy Richie Goods on bass, this kid Dow Brain on piano, now Abel Boreal's playing with Paul McCartney. It's like, what the heck? Like, we were all teenagers. And, yeah. you know, and, and these were kids that really um, influenced me and made me who I am today and really helped me become the musician that I am. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's kind of a trip. But Yeah. So you come out of school and, and you've been working on this voice and you have that tool ready to go. But then what? What was your move? What's the I grind? know. So, of course, you have to make a living. Yeah. <laughs> I was a singing waitress on Spirit of Boston. Yeah. It was kind Wait, of, what's that? Uh, it was a boat that used to go around and had lunch cruises for old folks and whatnot. And then at night, you know, you have cruises, too, and you'd sing and dance and wait tables. What kind of music? Like anything from show tunes to, like, pop music. Yeah. Or at the time, like, I would do Linda Ronstadt covers or whatever <laughs> they would let me do. And you audition for those, too. Yeah. And so not everybody would get solos, but you'd have to audition. So I've been auditioning my whole life for stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, all right, let's do it. You yeah. Know, and were your parents standing behind you at this point, or were they getting nervous? My parents were always behind me. Okay. They were always supportive. I, I have to say I've been very lucky that way. And... You know, not all kids were that lucky. I had yeah. a lot of, you know, kids that I went to school with that their parents weren't behind them. They didn't have enough money. They had to try to get scholarships. Mm-hmm. They had tremendous amount of debt they incurred. You know, so it's just, it's kind of heartbreaking, you know. So um, I, I was incredibly blessed. I, I definitely had a foot ahead mm-hmm. just because of the support alone. Not right. even necessarily financially, but I had that too if I needed it. Yeah. So did that allow you to sort of say, okay, this is, I'm going to do this and this is, this is where I'm going as opposed to having a saying, oh, I'm going to have a fallback or this might not work out or something. Like what was your mentality going into it? My mentality was pay the rent and sing whenever possible. And I would pay the rent by doing different things. I had a job at Copley Place, an electronic store, because I had the electronic background as a kid. <laughs> so I was doing that. And because of that, I would meet people there. I met lots of famous, you know, athletes and musicians. They'd come into the store to buy stuff. So I'd make connections. And a lot of it is meeting people. And that's what you're supposed to do in the real world, right. is meet people, talk to people. And I miss that. I, I'm kind of over this whole I don't know. I can't even keep up with the electronics and everything now. I'm like, uh, I have to ask my 11 year old daughter, yeah. <laughs> like how to do things on Instagram. It's embarrassing. 
<clears throat> but it's just a different thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I would, I actually did the singing waitressing for a while, but I'd have a band on the side. And then, you know, I'd be in part different bands. And for a while I was doing um, wedding bands, which is really horrible. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> and, and it kind of degrading. Um, embarrassing, <laughs> lots of different things because they're just making horrible requests or what? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually would get paid extra money to do certain songs. I was like, I'm not singing that unless you really? give me three hundred dollars more to sing <laughs> Vision of Love, Mariah Carey, and hit all the notes. <clears throat> That's but, brilliant. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Props to you for thinking of that. Oh yeah. I, and I they're like, we that. need it. But it was incredible. It was incredible money. That. Yeah. And that was the the toughest part about it was I was doing what I loved singing, but. I was doing somebody else's music that I didn't love. Right. And the toughest thing was giving up the paycheck. So I, I gave it all up. I was making like $700 a gig, you know, and a time when my rent for the month was $700, That's you know. Tough. Um, and I said, well, I, I'm just going to have to budget and be poor and start a band. And so I did. And I met some I met some girls. Actually, um, this is right around when the the very first House of Blues was just starting to open up. Um, somebody came and saw me at Johnny D's is a little club in Somerville, which I'm very sad. They're closing coming up this March. It was an amazing club and uh, just a a family business with other strong women that ran it. Um, cue the theme. Yes. Which is amazing. (laughs) And Carla Delellis, uh, she was, she's a daughter of, of the, the mom who ran it for years. Um, but she still runs it. Carla does. And, um, I feel like they just need a giant <clears throat> fundraiser led by Susan Tedeschi uh, and all your awesome oh. friends. Save the bar. I know. Well, and that's the other thing. Like, she wants me to come and play. I want to go do it, but I'm trying to figure it out. Like, I'm a mom, and we have all these dates. Yeah, you're a little busy. We know. It's insane. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure that out, too. It's yeah. a little crazy. But I do need to go up there <laughs> and do something. Um, but, Were you writing songs at this point? Yeah. Well, okay. I started writing at about 13 or 14. Got it. So I did start writing at a young age. Uh-huh. Um, and as, you know... Even at Berkeley, I was writing on piano and on acoustic. So I did play and write on different instruments, but I wasn't really playing out in public with an instrument. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until later. And then, so at Johnny D's, um, House of Blues, met some girls that were actually wanted to start a blues band. And that was Adrian Hayes, uh, who was a guitar player, and... Uh, little Annie Rains on harmonica and Annie was doing a duo with a gentleman by the name of Paul Rochelle and they have their own group and then she joined our group well the three of us at the time were 25 24 and 22 fronting a blues band and people were like this is so weird young white girls you know this is cool and we ended up um doing the Battle of the Blues Bands in Boston and won and got to go down to Memphis for the Battle of the Blues Bands for the country and came in second. Whoa. Wow. And Wait, what of kinds that, of bands were you battling? All different kinds. Yeah. The, actually, the the one that we lost to wasn't even a real band. It was like a review of like eight different like badass soul singers from D.C. or oh, something, okay. and they just put something together. <laughs> the so ringers. Like, yeah, yeah. It was basically like a, you know, almost more like a wedding band, but they were really great soul singers, yeah, you know, yeah. blues and stuff. Um, but there were people like Michael Burke's band. He was, uh, somebody that was out for a while. Um, he was in the competition. I think he came in third. Um, so that must've put some wind in your sails. Oh, it absolutely did. And actually it opened up this whole new world to us, which was festivals. And because we came in second, we got signed to three festivals right away. We did the Jacksonville 
festival, Spring in the Blues. We did the King Biscuit Blues Festival in Helena, Arkansas, which is where Sonny Boy Williamson and B.B. King and people like that, like that, that's where they used to play okay. um, in the old days. And uh, we actually went to Memphis and from Memphis drove to Helena, Arkansas, did the show um, with Jack Owen and, and Robert Jr. Lockwood, who is, um, I guess, the stepson of Robert Johnson. His mom used to date Robert Johnson. Wow. <clears throat> and, you know, it was all these amazing legends to us. You know, it was um, people like, um, you know, Bobby Bland and people like that would be there. Um, I'm trying to think of who was on that. And there would be people like Al Cooper who played in Blood, Sweat, and Tears and also played with Dylan. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were all sorts of artists there. Um, also Duck Dunn and um, Steve Cropper. They oh, were all Otis's there too. guys. <clears throat> yeah, Otis's guys. Yep. So they were all there. And so we made a lot of connections there. And we would go and sit in at clubs. So around these festivals, they would have clubs that were, would have bands playing. And you could sometimes be like, hey, man, you should get us up, you know. And mm-hmm. they'd get Adrian and I up. You know, we, you know, she'd play guitar. I'd sing. Or uh-huh. Annie would play harmonica or whatnot. And Annie, at the time, you know, she was starting to really make, you know, turn some heads because she was playing with people like James Cotton and she knew Lazy Lester and she was playing with, you know, some of the real great harmonica players that, you know, maybe played with Muddy Waters, people like that. Mm -hmm. So it was a great time. And and that band, we were making $13 a night or $50 a night, you know, whatever. But it was great. And we so happy. And we were driving a van all across country and, you know, staying all of us in one bed, you know, in a hotel. You know, it was just, like, you know, it was great. Life. This is, <clears throat> it was life on the road and it was great. And we were doing it ourselves. And, yeah. and we were starting to write our own tunes as well as playing covers and, you know, trying to work both of those and, and figure that out. So that was really the, the start of my first solo band. Okay. Was and that was ninety three that we, um, I guess won the. Or was it ninety one? Yeah, it was ninety three that we came in second in Memphis. So and is that when you then <clears throat> signed with? So I signed with Tone, Tone cool, cool in ninety five. Okay. Ninety four. Based 95. off of with from that band yes, or was it a different that band? Okay, that band. And how did that happen? Well, Rosie, who is Richard Rosenblatt, started Tone Cool Records. He had a few bands that were on his label, um, North Mississippi All-Stars, Tony Lim Washington, Paul Rochelle and Annie Rains, and us, and a couple other bands, um, and, and Mike Monster Mike Welsh, who at the time, when they first opened that first House of Blues, they came and asked Mike to come and sit in for the openings, and they asked me to come and sit in. And so that's how we kind of got tied into that blues scene, met a lot of people like Dan Aykroyd, and Isaac Tigret, who started the House of Blues, and he started all the the, the hard rocks, but he sold them and built an amazing hospital in India with $40 million. Um, Money well spent. Mm-hmm. So it was, it's a fascinating thing, but all these things just kind of unfold. The more you get out and you do stuff, mm-hmm. then things happen. That, mm-hmm. That's how things happen. They're not going to happen just sitting at home on a computer talking about stuff. The only way that anything has ever happened for me is just taking a chance and showing up at a concert. I was singing in the audience. Otis Rush was singing. He pointed at me in the audience and said, come up here. I got up on stage. He's like, let's make up a song. We made up a song. I sang with Otis Rush. I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> are, like, this is incredible. So you never know when things are going to happen, how they're going to pan out. Yeah. And then, I, you know, things really started to change. You know, I got the deal with Tone Cool. 
and they were hoping I would sell 60,000 records. Well, I sold 600,000 records. And they wow. were like, um, we weren't expecting this. And now you're like, <laughs> we don't ask this, but you're like up against Kid Rock and Macy Gray and, and Christina Aguilera and, and Britney Spears. This is your first release. Yeah. First time. I was like, eh. <laughs> wow. Okay. Wow. <clears throat> so how do you explain surreal. the success yeah, of that how? album? Was it? I think it was timing. Yeah. I think it was because the House of Blues had just started um, taking over the nation here and there, starting to build up you know, a popularity. Blues is one of those things that always comes back around. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a number one thing. Like Bessie Smith sold a million records during the depression. Okay. This is a woman selling a million records in one of the poorest times in the nation. Yeah. So, you know, blues is something that always comes back around. It's something people can relate to. The problem now is that a lot of young African-American kids, they, they have this bad association with it. They think it has to do with slave owning and this and that. But what they don't realize, it has nothing to do with that as much as it does humans and the things that the trials and tribulations, the everyday stuff, paying the rent. You have a bad relationship. You want to sing about it. You, somebody's sick. You know, this person, you know, hurt my feelings or that person shot my friend or, you know, it, it's about telling a story. It's about real life stories mm -hmm. and that's what you learn when you get on the road with people like bb king and yeah. buddy guy mm -hmm. and even people like dr john and like all these people that you know jimmy vaughn all these folks that i was on the road with you know i really i realized you know this music is very accessible to people they can get it they can feel it they understand it and so i think at the time it was just timing mm -hmm. i think it was just something that people were needing at the time and it was right before rap what year really, is this this was um 1997. Okay. Did you experience at that time or throughout the, your career much of that, much of people th saying, you know, this this music is about slavery or this is about something that really you can't relate to? Did you experience people giving you that? <clears throat> A lot of times it would be white people. It would never really <laughs> be. It was because it was never really, you know, like a lot of the old blues guys, you know, they would never say anything like that because they were, well, first off, they lived it. And for them, music was a release from that. It was an escape from that life. And so for them, I think it was something that was an emotion that they were, you know, getting out through music. And music is so universal. It doesn't matter what language you're speaking. You know, you can pretty much connect with people on that level um, as a musician. Um, but I would find it more amongst white people trying to judge me, usually white men. But yeah. um, just saying. Interesting. Um, interesting. <laughs> um, so it was interesting. And then I always thought about people like Janis Joplin and people like Bonnie Raitt. Like, you know, they're right. very influenced by blues. And here they are, white women right. with blue eyes. And, <laughs> um, you know, and, and for to see how they were perceived, it, you know, is interesting, too. I mean, they work their butts off, you know. I mean, Bonnie still does. And Janis died too young, but she worked really hard. And she gave herself a little too much, like body, mm -hmm. soul, everything. Yeah. You know, she gave it all and she, you know, drank herself and, you know, obviously OD'd and stuff. But, um, you know, it's there's a lot of pressure there, you know, and it's hard being a woman because it doesn't matter what color you are. If you're a man or you're a woman, there's definitely a difference. Yeah. And, I, and yeah. you can say that to people, but they don't know. But women know. <laughs> Women know. You're like, believe me, women can sing the blues. We understand. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 
there's struggle. I mean, we still what, we still don't get equal pay. Exactly. I mean, we still don't have. Um, you know, you think about it. I mean, women obviously are the ones that are going to give birth. So here we are in the United States. We're supposed to be like the smartest, richest country, but we still don't have maternity leave for women. Like really set up, like in other countries, like you know, I don't know. France, for example, or Sweden or somewhere, you know, you basically, oh, give you a year off and we'll pay you. Right. You know, and that's important. You know, here in America, especially, that could be a major factor to help, you know, because if you're helping the moms, you're helping the kids. And if these kids have a mom that is confident and feels like that, you know, she can feed her kids or she can, you know, have a roof over their head and she can be there for them, you know, I mean, that's an amazing thing. And you know, and it is hard being a woman. It is a, a little bit trickier than people realize. But then there's also perks. Because being a woman can awesome. get you in places that maybe, you know, you can flirt with somebody like B.B. King. He might let you up on stage. You know, if you're a guy, that might not happen. Yeah, that's right. Cuts both so, ways. Yeah, so it does cut both ways. So I definitely think take advantage of whatever assets you have, whether you're a man or a woman, whatever your strengths are, you know, pay attention to that and communicate with people, get out there and meet people. Yeah. So when you have a huge selling album like that, but maybe people still don't know your name as much as they might know some of your music, is that when you get hooked up with those big headliners and you start touring around with some of the biggest names? Well, so I, what happened with me, well, one of the big things you have to do is, so once you finally start to get established yeah, and having a record deal is one thing, mm-hmm. um, having a successful record, you know, even having a successful record, I didn't necessarily always have an agent. I always booked myself up until 98. That's when I started with uh, Ron Kaplan and Monterey International. And so I started with them, and that's when they're, they're the ones that can get you on bigger tours. Okay. Because they have all these other acts. Even with that this need huge openers. selling album, yeah. you're on the label. You yeah. still didn't have a no. booker. <laughs> no, I did everything myself. But... I did women, women, but I that. did. Well, so I, yeah, I mean, I was driving the van. I was booking the gigs. I was selling and CDs who was in the off band the stage. At this point? Is it, it's the three of you ladies. <laughs> so well, it was the three of us and we had two guys Our, was a rhythm section was, um, for a little while it was Mike Aiello on drums and Jim Lamond on bass. When it first started, Jim Lamond stayed for a while. And then it was TH, Tom Hambridge on drums. And then eventually over time it morphed, it changed. Um, Annie had to go out with Paul. They had, you know, their own record deal, and she had to do that. So Adrian would come out with me, and then that's when I, okay, and then, of course, boyfriends and, you know, <laughs> guitar players and all this come into play. And that so it wasn't just Derek. Band. Oh, no. <laughs> Sean Costello. Oh, this was a pattern. Tim Guerin, yeah. No problem. <laughs> well, I mean, I dated Tim Guerin for four years, and he was a wonderful guitar player in Boston. And played with him and got, to, and he was playing in Tony Lynn Washington's band, who was also signed to Tone, Tone Cool Records. And he actually was very patient and he was really one of the first ones to really help teach me how to play guitar or at least let me up and try it out, you know, and, and play a blues jams with him. And he would, you know, he was a, you know, really great teacher in a lot of ways. Um, great singer and songwriter, guitar player. I feel like dating someone in your band would just be drama. Right. Yeah, it can be, but (laughs) it just depends, you know, on the person and all that. Um, Honestly, I was terrified to start a band with Derek because, I mean, here the two of us have had our own bands forever, and we're both very fiery and stubborn as it is. So I was a little intimidated going (laughs) in. But you were already married by then. Oh, yeah, we were married. Oh, yeah, Yeah. for a good 
long time. I mean, we, we've been together since 99. Right. And, you know, here it was 2010 that we started the band. So it was a good 11 years after being together. But still to this day is a lot different than being your boss, your own boss. You know, I have to admit, there is something to that that I kind of miss. But I don't really because he is such an amazing <laughs> boss. So You're the only one with the microphone on that stage, I want to point out. <sighs> yeah. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> but there's a lot that goes along with that. I don't know. It's hard to explain. But like anyway, you work together and you figure out the strengths of the whole band, whatever yeah, band yeah. you're in. And that's what you got to focus on. It's not about relationships when you're on stage. Right. You could be in a fight and nobody's allowed to know. You want that audience to think that you're getting along great. Yeah. yeah. You know, so at the end of the day, you know, and it doesn't matter who you're having a fight with in the band. You have to get along good with everybody in the band because that really does, you know, come out. Yeah. So you have to be careful about that. If you guys are fighting, can, do you guys like work it out in your music? Like he's like playing times. angrily at you and then yeah. you're like singing back at him. And yeah. Sometimes all of a sudden he'll give me a solo. I'm like, oh, you're going to let me get a little <laughs> solo. Yeah. That's awesome. Or Guitar wars. In the writing even. That kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, because I used to write a lot more on my own. And I think just being a mom now, being so busy, I don't set the time aside enough to do it. And that's something I, I know is one of my New Year's resolutions is to write more yeah. on my own again. And just just as a practice, as you know, just to keep doing it. You know, I got lazy because we had so many great writers in the band. You know, Derek and Mike are such great writers. I was like, oh, well, I guess I don't need tunes. Or- <laughs> lyrics, <laughs> too? Well, I'd sit and write lyrics with them. But honestly, I mean, I, I need to do more work. I need to work harder. I could do a better job. And that's well, why you're, you you you're coming out with your album this week. Yes. So you've yes. got it. You've no, I contributed the- a lot. I did. But I feel like <laughs> there's so many people that contributed that I'm in the old days. I would do all the work. Mm-hmm. So now I feel like I'm not doing enough work because I'm only doing like a 12th or maybe more of like a fourth. But doesn't no, part no. of you feel like I've worked up to this? This is this feels appropriate. It this does. Right. It does. And now this right is thing. probably a thing that you yeah, always say to yourself, which true. has brought you to this point in your career, <laughs> right? Right. Well, you so probably always never, feel like you're doing a little more. Always. Yeah. 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 I, I always need to practice my guitar. I always need to work on singing, and I what can is always that be kind better. Of routine of working and practicing. Now that you're, I mean, if you're playing and you're on the road and you're doing all these things, do you still get time to practice? Do you try to make time to practice? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes. Not like I used to, though. I used to literally hours and hours playing along with records. And, and you know, that, that stuff is great. You know, it's just that's some of the best practice you can do is just sitting along and learning some of your favorite heroes and play like whether you're singing full voice with them or playing guitar with them and learning maybe their solos and Freddie King solo. Try to learn that or, you know, Albert King or what is this guy doing? All of that helps because then it goes into your playing because it's in there. It's like little bits and pieces. And this one Hendrix tune I was trying to learn for a long time, and you know, I was on Hendrix Experience for a while, and some of that stuff will come out in a song, which I'm like, I don't, I don't even know where, how that came into the play. I'm like, does it even work? I don't know. So cool. But sometimes you could just throw it in there and it might work. But, you know, it's um, all of that stuff matters. You know, the more you can play and the more you practice, it, it helps. Right. So at that time, so you had this sort of revolving door of a band for a while. Yeah. And then did it sort of solidify more at a point? Yeah, it did. It did for a little while. Well, so then I started playing with, so for a long time I I had TH on drums and and he was doing a lot of work with us. And then it switched. I had Chris and Tommy, which was 
um, Double Trouble, which was Stevie Ray Vaughan's little rhythm section. So I just got daring one day and called up Whipper and was like, hey, you want to play? And he was like, yeah, yeah, it's great. Let's do it. And I was like, okay. So Tommy Shannon, Chris Layton, and I kept my old keyboard player for a while, Tom um, Tom West, who was a, you know, he's a great B3 player. And another one that would fill in if Tom couldn't do it was Bruce Katz. And he's, you know, still around in the scene too. I, I see him around. Um, he sat with the Allman Brothers and stuff. So these guys, you know, would play with me. Um, I guess in '99 and 2000. So I haven't and heard. Then, of... sorry. No, and then so I had that band for a little while, and then I met Derek, and you know we started dating, and I had that band for a while, and then it switched again. Then I wait. Can I interject while we're in '99? Yeah. Can you tell us about Lilith Fair? <laughs> yeah. How was that? What do you remember? I remember going to Lilith Fair and thinking, oh, this is cool. There's all these women, you know, all these female acts, and. And they really encouraged us to get together and, and hang out and meet. So, like, I met Liz Fair and Cheryl Crow and, and Sarah McLaughlin and um, the Dixie Chicks. and Such a moment. Like, yeah. And, like, all these women. And, we, and everybody was really down to earth. And I was like, oh, well, this is really cool. This is, like, way chiller than a bunch of dudes. that Like, you just feel like they're untouchable and they won't let you play together. Meanwhile, Cheryl's like, hey, Sue, you want to get up? And, hey, you want to play on this song with me? I was like, okay. I was like, what are the chords? She showed me right there. I got up and sang with her, and she was really gracious, really sweet. Sarah McLaughlin did the same thing. The Dixie Chicks did the same thing. So I got up with all three of them that day Mm. because, you know, it just seemed like there there was no tension. There was no, like... I don't know, are you a chick singer vibe? You yeah. Because you get that. You know, I don't know why. Yeah, but also, I mean, gosh. it just wasn't intimidating at all. And yeah. the girls were great. They were all amazing and super sweet. It's not that women are not competitive with each other, but I think that there is some element of, especially when men are removed, that it's much more collaborative. It is. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, that just happened to us too. Recently, we were doing, um, we do this Sunshine Blues Festival that our band started a couple of years ago and we do it in South Florida. We play a couple nights and we get a, you know, a few bands that we think would be cool on it to play it. And, <clears throat> and it's built up the last few years. So now there's been a couple stages and there's more bands and we had the Indigo girls go on before us and they got me up to play with them. And I was like, really? I was like, okay. And of oh, course, man. like I remembered the words from like 1985 <laughs> or whatever it was. Awesome. You know, Closer to Fine came out. Yes. I don't know. So I got to sing that with them. I was like, really? Like, yeah, we want you to play guitar, too. I was like, okay, not yet. Let me just remember the words first. And But they're really sweet, and they were totally open to me doing whatever. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. This is really great. That's great. How many dates did you play with Lilith Fair? Do you remember? Was it a long No, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a ton of dates. Yeah. It really wasn't. It was just a few. I didn't do the whole tour. Yeah. And I was just coming on the end of it. And actually, there was a girl who I befriended there that was on like an even smaller stage than I was on. And um, and she ended up becoming really big. What's her name? She's saying, like a bird. I'm like a Natalie bird. Natalie Imbruglia? No. no. Um, shit. Oh. Uh, she Nelly, just came out Nelly with Nelly, Nelly Furtado. Furtado. Right. Right. Yeah. Same, but like, yeah, same association. Yeah. yeah. And so we hung out, and she was really sweet, and... And then, and, and I was like, gosh, you're so pretty. You're going to like make it huge. And she became a cover girl and then bam, 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 had all these hits. And it was really funny because she was just like this little shy thing playing like acoustic on this little tiny stage, you know, like five feet by five feet. Yeah. So it's cool to see people go from that and then, you know, really have a career. Another one that I knew before she was famous was Nora 
Jones. I was like, you're going to be huge. She's like, no, I'm not. No, she's really sweet down to earth. 20 million records right. later, I'm like, so what's up, Nora? You know, she's like, shut up. I didn't know, you know, <laughs> really sweet. Just, you know, really. What if someone would have said that to you? I mean, I think. Well, I have never sold 20 million records. <laughs> I've never sold the kind of records that these girls Yeah, but have. when you first sign and your album sells how much? 600,000? Yeah. Mean, that's like, it's, it's something that you can't really put your finger on to imagine. But then it seems like your whole life you've been really single-minded, knowing this was coming, feeling it. Well, you know, I, the most important thing to realize is that, you know, you're focused on music and you're not thinking about how many records you're going to sell and you're not thinking about how much money you're going to make because that never works out. I mean, you're in the wrong business if you want to make money on purpose. You know, you got to do it because you love it and you do it because it's such a thrill, you know, and meeting all these people and, you know, the adventures that Derek and I have had, you know, since we both started out it's it's quite mind-blowing and the two of us are the same in that way where we just love what we do and and we're thankful to do it every day you know and you know it's just like having a job that you're thankful for that you're not miserable in yeah. you know we've all had jobs that make you so miserable that you're like I quit I quit and I'm gonna I do quit. something I won't I pay my rent but it, I can't right. be here anymore exactly yeah. it's so worth not paying the rent if you're happy right yeah you know? at the end of the day <laughs> um, you'll find ways yeah exactly to find a job that makes you happy yeah so when did you and Derek form the band together so we formed it in 2010 okay and then the Grammy came with the, the first, first record wow. Revelator yeah I think it was 2011 right so what did that mean? What did that nomination mean? Well, the nomination alone was great. I mean, I've been nominated six times, but never had won. Uh-huh. And Derek's like, don't worry, you're going to win now. I was like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? How are you so confident? But he was so cute. He was really confident. He's like, don't worry, you're going to win. We're going to do it. I was like, okay, whatever you say. And he was right. Somehow. I don't know what happened. We just, uh, timing once again, we lucked out. We had a great record. Um, really great people behind us. You know, there's a lot of people involved outside of the band yeah you know to in order to make that kind of stuff happen you know right. you have to have great you know management we have we're lucky we have blake you know blake has been with Derek almost 20 years now and you know he's just like you know so he's just since amazing Derek was five <clears throat> yeah exactly no that. he's 37 <laughs> since, since he was a teenager though yeah since he was 17 16 17 probably little prodigy yep i mean blake was young too i mean he was starting out and he was working under other people but then he became the one that you could trust and that was working hard and that, you know, that stuff, you know, you see how different people are yeah. and you learn about people and, and it's important, you know, you build relationships. It's all about that. And the right record company, the right management, the right agents, the right, you know, people, you know, backing you and, and those people represent you too. So you don't want those people to be jerks. You know, you don't want somebody showing up at your gig and treating everybody, you know, mean, and then it comes back to you. So, you know, everybody from our crew, like you come to our shows, we love our crew. Yeah. We know our crew are working hard every night and they're good people. But let me ask you, if someone <clears throat> in your circle has bad vibes, are you good at cutting them out? Um, yes. Who, who's the axe wielder? My husband. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he, will nix, he will nix that He's bad cop. quickly. Yeah. He is the bad cop and, and rightfully so because he knows it'll come back to us, yeah. you know, and it's just... And it you can don't just want that. The whole it's like thing. a cancer. It affects yeah. everybody, everything, the mood, mm-hmm. the vibe. You know, it's all about, you know, making things comfortable. Yeah. You know, making people happy. Right. So, had you been to the Grammys six times before that time? I didn't go every time I was okay, up, but I, I've been about four or five times. Yeah. Okay. 
So you were a pro. And then when you won, you were like, it, it was right, actually it, Derek, a huge, right. yeah, I was, I was excited <laughs> that he was right. And it was a huge weight off, you know, because you finally, you know, have accomplished something that you feel like you're never going to win. Yeah. You know, you keep getting nominated, but you're like, oh, I guess I'm never going to win. But when you do win, you're like, oh my gosh, we won. Like, That's all cool. right. Cool. We did it. And then it's something that you can say we did. I don't right. know. It's just an accomplishment. So you feel like other people in your industry are giving you credit for doing what you do. Yeah. And so that's absolutely. a great feeling. And it's not about the award as much as just a sense that, wow, I guess we're on the right path and we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Cause you probably look for those signs along the way, right? You do. And you're not sure if you're doing a good job or not, but you hope you are. Yeah. So it's nice, you know, every once in a while I'll get those kind of things. Yeah. Cool. So tell us about the new album. So our new record is called Let Me Get By. It is on Fantasy Records, mm -hmm. put out by Concord. And it is amazing because uh, everything is in-house. Derek produced it. Uh, Bobby Tease, who is our engineer, lives three, three doors down that, from Derek and I. Nice. He's amazing. Uh, he engineered the record. Um, is this the first time <clears throat> that Derek produced and he engineered it? Okay. Yeah, uh, they have done that. He, they, they've worked with other producers in the past, but this is the first time without anybody, without record company, without producers. Derek did it all pretty nice. much himself. And the two of them are, you know, they have a, such an amazing work ethic. You know, they'll work 24 hours straight in the studio. I'm like, you need to eat. You need to come inside and go to bed. You know, they'll just be in it, you know, and, you know, give your ears a break, you know, something. Yeah. Where did you guys record it? Um, in our studio behind our it's house. It's all down there. Okay. Mm -hmm. so, so the whole band goes down. Yep, they don't so, all live down there, do they? No. Yeah. Mm -mm. So they'll come down and we'll rehearse for a few days and we'll be messing around and Bobby T's will be setting up mics and we'll practice and he'll be recording all that stuff. So sometimes we'll write something and he'll record it and we'll listen back and go, oh, yeah, we should turn that into a song or you know, whatever. So, you know, it all happens kind of organically and we just go down and play and then we'll sit around and write and people will bring different ideas and then we'll work on them and, you know, we'll build it up from the rhythm section make sure we get a good track and then we'll start adding layers of guitars or vocals or background vocals or horn parts. And so you know, it works like that. And everybody in this band has contributed to the songwriting of this. We have a song, Let Me Get By. The title track was actually a song that Kofi and some of the guys were messing around at Soundcheck and Kofi came up with this head, this you know little part, and, and it turned into something. And then we wrote lyrics behind it and, and that's how that song came about. Um, JJ had a melody he'd been singing and that became Don't Know What It Means, which is a really catchy song on the album and really great song. It's got a lot of energy written by one of the drummers, you know, so it's really cool. So um, then, of course, Mike Madison always contributes and writes some amazing songs, um, wrote a lot of the songs with Derek and I and um, Doyle Bramhall also contributed on this record as well, which he has the last couple and. He always does a, a fantastic job. He's such an amazing musician. He's it's a family of, affair. Yeah, so it's it's all within the group, and everybody contributed, and um, even our other drummer wrote lyrics and stuff too. You know, it's cool. Like everybody contributed in different ways. You know. Yeah. Do you get much of an opportunity to sort of step back and say, like, wow, this is this is kind of dreamy? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I look around. I'm like, wow this band sounds really good. How am I in this band? Like I've never had a band sound that good. All my band. I mean, I've had great bands, but, um, and, and over the years, you know, I would switch up personnel so often that I wouldn't have like a consistent band. 
Um, but actually, Falcon, who plays with us, he was in my band for about five or six years um, before we started this band. So the band that led up to me switching gears was uh, Ted Pecchio on bass, uh, Tyler Greenwell on drums, Matt Slocum on keyboards, and Dave Yoke on guitar. Now, all of these guys still play in our circle. Right. Like, some of them are playing with Doyle, some play with, you know, different players. Same with Derek's old guys. Uh, some of them pay, play with J.J. Gray from Mofro. You know, so a lot of these bands that you'll hear, they're from our old bands, too. So it's very incestuous in a lot of ways. Yeah, so a lot of these musicians are still our best friends and we still want to record and make music with them and and it's hard to have a band bigger than 12 or we would do it <laughs> but we can't we can't do it that's it gotta that's cap it off somewhere yeah. capping it off yeah well looking back as like a final sentiment what would you say it is in you that kept you so tenacious all this time through all these chapters and all these collaborators and what is it? Well, what, what was guiding you? Well, the you know the drive to perform and, yeah. and to play music, as well as my brothers growing up telling me I couldn't do it. There mm. you go. Secret. I have two older brothers. Perfect. Very competitive. They're like, "You're horrible. Stop singing. You'll never be a good singer." So wow. I was like, "I'll show you," and I'm one of those people. Like, you can't tell me to, that I can't do something, or I will do it. So. There you go. That's the tenacity of being a woman. (laughs) (laughs) All right. um, What are you going to play for us tonight? Well, it's interesting because since we have the new record out, I don't really play these on acoustic. um, So I'm going to try to play the title track. I'm going to attempt to. Awesome. It's going to be so different, though, because it sounds different with our band. Cool. It's special. But I'll try. Okay. All right. Thanks, Susan. Thank you. Let me get by. I told you that time will change me And I've got a body to move And if you're just willing to stand there With nothing to see or to prove Even a kick you sometimes Oh, man. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.